Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Tuning Into Harmony podcast with Josh Brill. And I'm really excited about today's episode because we have a special guest, Frank Portalis, who is a guitarist and a teacher. Um, somebody who's been really important in my life. He was my guitar teacher for a while, and we'll go ahead and unpack that experience in just a bit. But I just wanted to say hi, Frank. Welcome. Hi, Josh. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. So Frank, I first met Frank when I was 15. So that was 22 years ago at this point. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was about that time I was in high school and I was getting a lot more serious about my guitar playing and my exploration with music. And Frank was a highly recommended teacher um, from a couple sources in Chicago. And I began studying with him, what turned out to be... Um, I studied with Frank throughout all of high school and even through college, and Frank has been uh, a really important person in my life, a, a teacher, a mentor, and a fabulous musician, one of my favorite jazz guitarists. So uh, it's just a, it's, I'm really excited about doing this with you, Frank. So thanks again. Sure, Josh. Love to do it. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So I'm curious. Um, you know, we'll just begin, like, you want to share a little bit about your own experience as a musician, like, more like the your path of music and how um, how you came to the guitar, what your life has been like with the guitar and music? Sure. Well, I'm, uh, I'm 64 years old, to give you a sense of the timeline. Um, when I was um, 10, I uh, heard the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show. And a lot of guitarists my age will tell you that's exactly what their initial inspiration was. Uh, the next morning, we were all out on the playground deciding what instruments we were going to play in this band we were going to form. And so, uh, um, you know, one thing leads to another. And uh, from the garage band experience, and um, then we ended up uh, playing local dances and um you know, just copying the songs that were happening in the in the 60s, the pop music songs, which in retrospect um, were of uh, remarkably high quality, actually, if you're, you know, especially if you're learning by doing, there was uh, no better source, I think, uh, even since then, uh, for that, you know, that kind of process. Did you have a teacher back then? I had a teacher for a year and a half, um, Denny Sirens, Dennis Sirens in Mishawaka, Indiana. He had a beautiful uh, D'Angelico guitar, as a matter of fact. Mm. And um, uh, he, uh, you know, was sort of a traditional teacher, and I used the Mel Bay book uh, <laughs> for, for a, a short period of time. And um, I stopped studying because I wasn't, uh, well, to be quite honest, my father didn't think I was practicing uh, the lesson. He thought I was kind of sloughing off. So he didn't want to pay for the lessons. Um, but uh, after that, for a good 10 years, I was self-taught through high school, through college, went to uh, a school and majored in uh, broadcast journalism. Never used that degree because uh, by the end of my college years, uh, I had heard uh, the jazz guitarist George Benson and uh, Joe Pass. Mm -hmm. And I determined that, uh, you know, that was something I really had to explore. So I, uh, after I left school, after I graduated, I moved to Chicago 
And um, then I studied with uh, Jack Cicchini, who uh, is a very influential person in my life. Studied with him for five years. I studied with um, a saxophonist named Joe Daly um, that many people in Chicago will know that name. And uh, other than uh, just jumping into the um, music scene that was Chicago in those years, uh, that's the extent of my training. But I would sit next to a lot of people that really knew what they were doing and uh, watch what they did, watch what they didn't do. And if I asked them uh, about something they were doing, they would tell me. Mm. And um, it was a beautiful time in my life, uh, you know, just um, – <sighs> doing what I could to keep body and soul together, you know, teaching about 30 students and just, you know, paying the bills and then uh, every night going out and finding um, what kind of jam session or musical experience I could get myself involved in. And uh, I re I stayed in the Chicago music scene uh, from 1975 until um, literally six weeks ago. Uh, when I moved to uh, Southwest Florida here. So uh, my uh, performance and teaching career centered around uh, Chicago all those years. Taught at the American Conservatory of Music. Um, I uh, taught at Triton College. I taught at Elmhurst College. I did a stint actually at uh, the University of Michigan for five years, uh, commuting to Ann Arbor hmm. once a week. Uh, I did a short uh, period at the University of Chicago, University of Illinois at Chicago, I should say. And uh, that's the teaching career in a nutshell. I did a lot of commercial playing, what we call commercial playing. People call it jobbing or casuals. Um, I always did a lot of jazz playing. I uh, recorded my first album in 94. Another album uh, a couple years after that, and I did uh, another uh, record in 2010. And, um, you know, it's just been, uh, it seems like year after year, it's just, you just keep doing what you're doing. You just try to get better at it. Uh, you try to understand your craft. You try to understand yourself. You try to understand your position in the, in the universe, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's it in a nutshell, Josh. Uh, you know a lot of this. Um, you were there uh, for a lot of it. And fortunate for me, uh, we kept in touch over the years, and we were always able to sort of uh, keep each other abreast of what was going on. And, uh, of course, that's a relationship I, I cherish. So uh, I guess we're keeping that relationship going uh, even to uh, right now. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And this is kind of um, part of the theme. It's like how music connects people. And, yes. uh, you know, it, it's obviously like a common interest in all of that type of stuff. But there's something deeper about it, too, isn't there? You can see someone who you haven't seen for 10 years, a fellow player. And you will both remember the last gig you were on, who led it, where it was, probably what the weather was like. <laughs> um, probably half your set list, and uh, you know it's it's a it's amazing it uh, the level of detail um, that um, you know what what I don't know what happens to your consciousness when you're uh, in performing situations, but um, it really is it's it's like it's like uh, uh, your deepest memories 
and yet there's so many of them, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and and like I say, you know, I mean, especially now I'm, I, I guess I'm talking about, you know, good experiences. I'm talking about, you know, if the if the if the gig was a good one, if if uh, if it's a player, you know, that you respect, uh, admire or are and or are good friends with. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it 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 brings people together. I think it brings people together, you know, musician to musician. I know that it brings people together, musician to non-musician, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's our, our dream that it brings people together, non-musician to non-musician. Right. Yeah. Well. Yeah, it's. I'm curious about the thing about remembering those gigs. Like, well, what do you think happens to consciousness, like in those moments? I don't know. You just enjoy it so much. Uh, maybe you. Maybe there's something going on in your mind where you just know this is something to be valued. Mm. You know, this is not ordinary experience. Um, you're you're tapping into something uh, big and uh, important. And when you, you know meet especially especially like running into other musicians people that you maybe that you haven't seen in a very long time but also people that you're interacting with often you have this shared experience that you know is not common in the culture mm-hmm. and and uh i suppose you know professional athletes probably have that same experience between them i'm pretty sure that uh actors uh have that same experience actually i've spoken to people about that in that profession and, um, you know, you know, the, 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 uh, feeling that I get from it, it's like two people who have survived the same shipwreck, <laughs> you know, and they find each other after 20 years and, and the, 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 the shared experience, the commonality of how, not only, not only what happened at that time, but how it has affected you in the, you know, subsequent to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is the type of thing that you, you just know that people sort of share values and and um, perspective and uh, you know perhaps beliefs you know that that um, uh, you know are that you hold dear. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something about being on a gig and part of like what the musician learns about like really listening and. Kind of the difference between I've said this on a previous podcast, uh, hearing and listening. That yep. he, that hearing is kind of automatic. You know, we hear sounds all the time, but when we learn how to listen, we're really engaging something deeper within us. And I feel like when we're in the state of real listening, um, well, we become more present for one. And when we're more present, there's something about moments that seem to um, crystallize beyond time. And I'm wondering if like. As a jazz musician, where listening is really key, I mean, it's probably like one of the, the biggest parts of it. If that, ha- if you think that has anything to do with it, like just being in such a receptive state and present state with the other musicians, with yourself, with the chord changes, like the whole process of that moment. Do you think that 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 there's something about that conscious state that really um, embeds the moment to be revisited later? Absolutely, it is um, listening is an essential skill in the same way that uh, maybe technique is an an essential skill. Um, Theory, understanding of music theory uh, is an essential, you know, to to jazz musicians. 
generally speaking. And just like not everybody has, you know, great technique, not everybody has uh, an encyclopedic knowledge of theory. I also think that many people are just challenged by uh, the ability to listen. Mm-hmm. My take on this is that um, you can't listen in this deep way unless everything else has been addressed. You cannot, I'm a guitar player, right? And you can't, um, you, you can't be thinking about your guitar neck at all. You just mm-hmm. have to know the guitar neck. You can't be thinking about um, the, the tune you're playing. You have to know it. You have to have experience already playing it many times and sort of developed a, a relationship with that tune. You have to know, you know, what the possibilities are within it. Plus, you have to know what, you know, what your, um, you know, what your choices are that, that you've made in terms of how you're going to do things. You have to know the theory that's behind, underneath uh, the entire thing. All of those things you can't be thinking about at all because then what happens is your your subconscious takes over. Your subconscious, you can uh, um, make the analogy. It's 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 like a, a very quiet voice that's saying very important things. <laughs> and if you're thinking about your technique, your technique is shrieking at you. It's hollering at you, top volume. If you're if you're, you know. If your knowledge of theory is inadequate for the task at hand, it's hollering at you. It's making noise. It's throwing chairs. You know, it's just distracting you. Mm -hmm. If all of those things are calmed down, then you can hear that quiet voice and you can follow it. And that to me is uh, when people say the music plays itself, the music comes from within. I don't know where that came from. I, I think that's, um, for me, what uh, the embodiment of that um, of that is. Um, you just you're you're playing a tune and you realize um, something tells you I can do this, mm-hmm. and you go or or even better, I should do this. This is the right thing to do right now, and if there are no impediments, you go ahead and do it. You know, now that's the ideal. You know, I get that once in a blue moon. You yeah, know, right. Which you can do, but that's that's the ideal. Not not going to claim that uh, I can do that whenever I want, but uh, that's that's the goal. That's the aspiration. Yeah, it's being played by music rather than playing music. That's right. That's what they call it. And yeah, I've had that experience. You know, I mean, I don't know if you remember this, but I think it was my sophomore year in college, and I was really not sure what to do. I was thinking about dropping out, and just going for it, you know? And um, mm-hmm. I had this experience where I, I mean, I was really kind of like reaching almost like a bitter state within. And I visited my friend in Maryland, didn't bring a guitar, didn't want to touch a guitar, you know, <laughs> didn't want to think about music. And yeah. um, he was studying, it was a Saturday and he was studying all day. So I was left to myself. And I remember putting on The Rite of Spring um, by Stravinsky. And I kind of had this meditation with it where... It it really was like the music entered me as I was listening. It 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 was almost like a psychedelic experience where I had um, visions and and I really felt every pulse and and all the whole the whole experience through the piece. Like it was a trip. And after that, uh, he had a guitar in the corner. I remember picking it up. And for 
I think it was about six hours, maybe seven hours. The music just played me and I wasn't doing a damn thing. I was, um, I, it was probably one of the highest moments of my life, especially at that moment where anything was possible. Like all the technique, all my ears were as tuned as I've ever had them. And literally music just flowed out for about six or seven hours. And um, that moment was really a turning point for me. And I feel like it really kind of helped me tune into this transcendental concept of, of music that it's not that we are creating, but we are like really the channel allowing creation to come through and just kind of like what you said, like our job is to get everything aligned and then we get out of the way and then it just kind of happens. Yes, that's, boy, I'm glad that happened. (laughs) I'm glad that happened to you. Uh, It sounds like the timing couldn't have been better. And, uh, you know, we do struggle, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, don't we? I mean, we we do. you've, You've shared your struggles with me. I uh, I don't know if I've shared my struggles with you to the same extent, you know, with our relationship, the teacher to student thing back in those years. But, um, boy, I want to assure you that, um, you know, I've, I've wrestled with, you know, all the same things. And, and there were, there were times, um, you know, I hadn't heard uh, the guitarist Peter Sprague until I was um, West Coast guitarist Peter Sprague until I was um, in my 30s at some point. And I heard a beautiful record that he made. And, um, you know, somebody had told me to, you know, listen to his playing. And, and I, so I found a, a, you know, a vinyl record in those days. I, I found a record and brought it home, started listening to it. And it, and it was a beautiful record. And I, and I listened to his, um, you know, he had, he had so many things down. He had harmony down. He had a great concept. And, you know, I just despaired. And this is after I've been playing for decades already. And I, for the first and only time actually in my life, I questioned whether I really should keep doing this hmm. or do something else, you know? When was and, that? Um, Around what this time? Was, I, was, I was, well, I was in, I was in Skokie. Uh, it was, I was in my early 30s. So this would have been the mid 80s, you know, mid 1980s. And, um, uh, I kind of moped around for about a week and, uh, and, 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 then uh, sort of, I, I, I think, I think maybe, uh, you know, the emotions weren't, you know, quite stinging me so hard after a few days. And, but then I ultimately remembered thinking, you know, well, I really don't have anything else that I can do. So, you know, I better, I better ride this out as best I can. Uh, so, you know, we do, we do struggle with it. And then, you know, hopefully moments like that come along you know the 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 guitar is an implement it's a hammer or it's a tool and and we you know express ourselves through it but we are an implement mm-hmm. as well the musician is you know where i'm going with this don't you i do <laughs> you know, the, the 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 musician is an implement and the music uses you know the implement to express express itself um you know these things are you can you can make a very strong case uh for example in physics you know all of our western music is based uh on the overtone series that's how sound is organized and um math you know, or which is how time is organized. You know, I, I you know, music is a combination of uh, it's part physics, it's part math, and it's part language. Mm-hmm. 
but um, you know, uh, every every vibration in in nature. I've got the guitar here. Every every vibration in nature is sort of a layered thing. Here's a note on the guitar. You know, there's that note on the guitar. Now that note is composed of a fundamental which is the the you know the the frequency i suppose of the sound and then there's an overtone of the sound there's another overtone there's another one and there are theoretically there are an infinite number of those somewhat quieter layers of sound above that fundamental tone mm-hmm. Um, this is the basis without really getting into it. This is the, the basis of, uh, how sound is organized. The idea that, uh, uh, the strongest overtone that's not just an octave itself, you know, is the fifth. And, and if you project fifths and then rearrange them in alphabetical order, you get what's called a scale. And, and this was something that was, um, discovered, uh, by, uh, Pythagoras. Mm-hmm. 500 BC. Uh, these sounds existed. People used them, and uh, intuitively, you know, understood relationships between them. But um, you know, the Greeks were very interested in finding a you know mathematical basis for everything. That was kind of their you know their science, and um, we've used that ever since. But it's not something that's uh, restricted to us here on earth you know these are universal constants Mm -hmm. uh physics is physics throughout the universe so you know i think that on the you know on the next galaxy all of those civilizations that are out there um i don't believe their music is a whole lot different from ours at least in terms of uh tonal organization Mm -hmm. tonality you know uh, um uh it just seems like, you know, uh, it seems like they should be the, you know, should be the same. They should have a scale, you know, and it should be like sort of like our scales. What they do with it, well, I can't wait to hear that. But, uh, you know, it should be based upon the same material. So we're dealing with some heavy physical law that forms the basis of what we consider as a good sound, mm-hmm. a beautiful sound, beautiful organization of, you know, of tone, uh, of tonality. And um, these things have been, uh, you know, worked out for centuries, you know, at this point in our existence. But uh, we will never um, exhaust the possibilities, you know, that that they uh, uh, that they give us, you know, mm-hmm. that they present present to us. So, um, you know, it, it's uh, if you just keep. If you just keep talking this crazy talk, you know it it uh, it, it, it it uh, envelops you know culture, philosophy, religion. Um, I, I feel like uh, you know um, the the idea of a of a deity or a god, you know, um, is explained in many different ways by um, many different cultures. But um, I think musicians have a very close relationship with some sort of, you know, universal constant that uh, um, is 
basically the sum total of all matter and energy in the universe. You know, there's yeah. your guy. Absolutely. What it comes down to. Well, okay, there's a lot I want to unpack there. <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, beginning with the Overtone series, I, I mean, I think what is so amazing about that is that's obviously not just within music, but all of nature also has those same patterns as well. So music really is this map or, you know, um, fractal experience of, of this natural order that exists on our planet, the solar system, uh, even the galaxies, like the way the planets revolve around the sun creates ratios, which are harmonic intervals. It's, I mean, it's pretty mind blowing when you begin to like unpack this concept that, mm -hmm. that music really is this, um, this dance of the, of the natural order of the universe. And, you know, it brings it up like what you said a couple of minutes ago about like the music in, within. And when I teach and I offer workshops, it's something I talk about, which is that literally we are made up of music. And it, it's if we were to define music, we would say, okay, some of the fundamentals of, of it are rhythm, for example. Like music, it's hard for music to really come to life without some sort of rhythm or pattern. And we can look obviously at our heartbeat, um, our brain waves, our breath. Like within us are all these rhythmic expressions of something, of energy. And if we go even deeper into that, we could look at, at the molecular level and the atoms and see that, that there's things spinning around each other. And, and those, are, those create certain patterns or frequencies, which also make existence possible. So I kind of feel like, you know, the music within is tuning into that, that natural or universal force that keeps everything together, you know, kind of like, like the gravity or the harmony of things. And when we really tune into the subtle sense within, we are tapping into that. And it's almost like a portal of consciousness because we're like actually like getting into the code or the, the structure of all and everything. And it's pretty incredible. And also like the, what I love about the overtone series is, I mean, I don't even think it's theoretical that there's an infinite number. I think that's just like the logical conclusion. Just like if we counted from one and started going up, we'll never have an, you know, an end. And when we consider that, music becomes this play of the infinite, that, that the musician is literally playing with, within the infinite possibilities and bringing this, this natural harmony that exists throughout all of everything into some sort of relatable experience that people tune to. And I think that's where the magic happens. You know, like you mentioned earlier, like like part of the the joy of of the musician is when non musician to non musician have connection, and I think what happens is in those experiences, let's say a concert, people are coming into some sort of shared resonance. They're all at a at a basic level having the same experience. At, you know that they're there in this moment within this energy, this music. You know, they're all listening to the same music at the same time, but at the deeper level. And from the scientific standpoint, people come into some sort of shared resonance, whether it be their breath rate or their brain waves kind of come into sync. And I think there's a field of energy that happens when people do that, you know, when people are dancing together. Time changes, you know, it's, I kind of look at it like, for me, one of those magical moments at concerts, it feels like a, like a kiss from the eternal. Like, like it feels like this moment is going on forever and I'm okay with that. And I think, um, that's one of the really most powerful things about music is that as a musician, we experience that the audience experiences that. And then we come together in that shared experience to 
um, I think, realize a deeper truth about nature and humanity and life, which may be that it's more simple than we make it. Or, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's an 18th century uh, conceit among scientists and musicians that um, now they were still thinking in terms of a geocentric you know, solar system mm-hmm. where everything revolved around the Earth is before Copernicus. But they used to um, speak in terms of the music of the spheres. Yeah. And uh, the planets, um, they were aware of the fact that there was, you know, that there were planets and they seemed to be revolving in some relationship to each other. They hadn't connected it to the sun yet, but they knew that it was a different relationship than, um, you know, what they saw the stars doing, which basically is nothing. The stars were fixed. Mm-hmm. So the fact that now they couldn't hear this music but they presumed that it had to be there because um these planets were moving through what they considered ether um you know not a vacuum and they you know because of the fact that there was motion and there was the and the, and the fact that the these various states of matter were interacting with each other in this motion planets and the ether uh there had to be sound and the sound had to be beautiful because it was god's creation and um thus was uh, born this concept of the you know the music of of the of the spheres um what we're you know experiencing as musicians is um the organization of sound the organization of time um when it comes to sound i think it's important to realize that um sound exists as a spectrum within uh, a much larger spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this whole idea of energy can be acoustic energy, uh, but uh, along that same same plane, there's um, uh, electrical energy, there's ultraviolet and infrared, and, um, you know, the whole light spectrum thing. Um, And... The, these clearly interact. Um, it's it's all part of the same, you know, continuum. And what binds the whole thing together is is vibration. Mm-hmm. And so there's matter, but at the very essence of matter, and the, and you 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 know you touched on this. Uh, what matter really is is vibration, mm-hmm. and you know movement. Uh, now, what you know, what uh, perpetuates that that movement um, is uh, you know the golden a question. Yeah. yeah, it's a sacred mystery, I guess. Um, uh, it's sacred in the not you know small s uh, in the non-religious uh, sort of aspect, but it's a it's a you know it's it's a mystery. We um, we we. Not necess- we're not necessarily as compelled to solve it as we are compelled to sort of live within it and revel within it and, and uh, you know, allow it to uh, bring us joy and bring us meaning. But, um, it, you know, all of these uh, it, all of these different forms of energy um, form, you know, the universe as we know it, uh, your your comment about time 
being relative and how you, you know, feel time standing still, time speeding up, you know, in, mm-hmm. in, in the midst of these shared experiences. Um, you know, a lot of times when we're in these really joyous states, we don't want it to end. And in fact, uh, the ending is sometimes delayed. You know, we sometimes partially get our wish mm-hmm. uh, because, um, you know, we, we enjoy the moment so much that uh, we experience it. Uh, we, we strive to and succeed at, ex- at experiencing it at this deeper level, you know, like we were talking about earlier when you see this musician, you know, from years ago and you remember the gig and you remember mm-hmm. so much about it. Yeah, you know, this, this, uh, we experience that on such a deep level that um, it, it very much appears that, uh, you know, time does not uh, move at its, at its normal pace. It seems to slow down. When I'm um, studying or executing technique, if I can get my mind a little bit ahead of what I'm doing, if I can um, basically know what it is I want to do and know how to make my fingers do it, then the third thing that has to happen is I have to know just ahead of time what it's going to sound like. The thing that I'm about to do, I need to know what it's going to sound like mm-hmm. just before I do it. And that third thing where you're thinking a little bit into the future, that's where you're messing with time. Mm-hmm. That's where you're, you've kind of got your hand on the speed knob at that point, you know, and, and you can, you can dial it down a little bit. It feels like when you're, when you're really on top of it, you feel like you have enough time to, um, you know, to sort yourself out and, and to get in front of, get in front of what you're doing. Uh, that's why we practice. That's why the, um, that's why the samurai is, uh, constantly, you know, out in the woods swinging those swords around, you know, the long sword and the short mm-hmm. sword. This is why, um, you know, the actor is, uh, continually, you know, honing their craft and you can look at all the arts and what we're all trying to do in a sense is, um, achieve a state where, Time slows down for us. Now, time may or may not be slowing down, uh, but um, the the feeling that we get is that I, perhaps it's perhaps it's an, it's better to say that what happens is our consciousness speeds up, mm-hmm. and we get in front of this thing that we're doing, and the effect to the player is that time is slowing down. Now, if the player is really good at executing that and expressing it, then yes, it slows down for the listener as well. And there you are in your concert and you're having that shared experience. Yeah, I'm really glad you touched on this. This has been a big theme of when I've been teaching lately and kind of like a big theory and hypothesis that, that I'm still working out, but that basically we have, that we have a tempo of attention. And, you know, oftentimes we think of like attention span, which is obviously already um, presupposing sort of a, a distance, you know, span, which is time and space together. Mm-hmm. And our tempo of attention is, is kind of like our internal structure of how, we, of how we're perceiving the moment. So when our internal tempo of attention is really fast, we're getting smaller chunks of the moment, you know, little bits, little bits and little bits and little bits. 
and we aren't able to retain as much because we're getting like, again, just smaller moments of the moment, kind of like um, a high frame rate with a camera, you know, or, or really fast exposure. And when we learn how to slow that down, we're actually experiencing and absorbing a longer moment because our consciousness, it's kind of paradoxical, but is both slowing down and speeding up at the same time. And, um, you know, which is why I feel like when we're more calm and relaxed, we tend to experience a whole lot more than when we're, when we're really anxious and nervous. And, and we could actually see how that tempo manifests in the body that when somebody is very anxious, you know, at, at an extreme, they'll begin to shake. So it's like that tempo is like so fast that they're, that all the energy in their body is creating a physical manifest and their heartbeat is going faster and their brain waves are going faster. And when we're able to slow things down, there's a certain sense of calm and peace and ease in there. And I think what happens, and it's kind of like bringing it back to the Overtone series, like the fundamental, the, the tone of our moment. Basically, the wider that is, the bigger the base of the fundamental, which actually allows for a higher overtone, if that makes sense, kind of like a pyramid, you know, for those of you who aren't, this is getting a little heady, but basically it's like a structure of a pyramid. So the wider our moment, the higher the apex is. And it, it just kind of reminds me of like the matrix when he learned how to slow down time and he was dodging bullets. And that's what it feels like to me when I'm doing that, that, that really time is fairly malleable depending on how we're able to connect to our own inner tempo of attention. And I think where the path of music is so powerful is that it actually gives us, it helps us kind of create the inner architecture of attention that when we are able to play in time, there's a certain level of attention that needs to be cultivated that stays present with the beat, that stays present with our body, with our listening, and it kind of all those things harmonize and allows us to really be in the flow state or be in the groove. And when we're able to do that, that's when I feel like music really comes alive. And I, I call that capital M music, where lowercase mm. music is kind of like, you know, it sounds nice, but it's not going to change your life. And capital M music is the presence of music. It's when magic is happening. It's, you know, like the first time, um, I'm trying to think of, of an example, but the first time I heard music that really changed my life, uh, there's an artist, Dead Can Dance. I remember listening to them and I felt the presence of music come in. There is magic there. And I really feel like there's something really intrinsically connected about our attention and our perception and learning how to basically regulate that so that we can change it and experience longer moments. And I don't know, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, today is the 75th anniversary of the birth of Jimi Hendrix. Mm. For, for example, this day when you and I are, are speaking here in late November. And um, the first time I heard that record, his first record, uh, Are You Experienced?, uh, was probably the first time in my life that um, I experienced this thing that uh, that you're talking about. Um, and I didn't understand it at the time. I think over the years, the other 10,000 times I listened to that album, you know, <laughs> Are You Experienced? Um, I, I think, uh, you know, I... I I um, was able to bring uh, broader levels of uh, maturity and experience 
to uh, my understanding of what I was experiencing there. Um, Jimi Hendrix played the guitar uh, much louder, for one thing, mm-hmm. than anybody had before. And he used um, uh, the amplifier in a way that um, other people had, you know, before. Uh, there was sort of a unique confluence of um, uh, technology, and uh, it happened in a particular point in time, late 1966, and it happened in a particular uh, cultural environment, uh, which is to say London. And, um, and he was bringing uh, a, a particular cultural experience uh, to this, uh, you know, his own experiences um, in the army and then, you know, being on the road uh, with, with the various, you know, R&B bands. And, um, you, you know, then he got, uh, you know, sort of, he had the, the Marshall amplifier, you know, which was, you know, the, the other type of amplifier at that time besides the Fender amplifier. And uh, he had Roger Mayer, who uh, was designing uh, various effects units for him, was inspired by what he did as a player and designed uh, certain, you know, devices for him. And and he learned how to uh, draw music out of them. Mm-hmm. He didn't just push the button and, you know, bang on his guitar. He, he, he was listening for something, you know. And, and this was a guy that, you know, a few months earlier was knocking around the village, um, in New York and, and hearing people like, uh, Roland Kirk, you know, on Sunday afternoons, you know, in a jazz club, the doors open, you know, and hearing these otherworldly sounds and, um, uh, was aware of, you know, those kind of things and, and was able to somehow access those things, you know, on the, on the guitar. Um, talk about a guy that heard the fundamental, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. uh, and and he heard uh, you know the overtones up there as far as the sky, but he was playing through a, a very um, a, 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 he was playing through a, a, a setup which once he figured out how to use it, um, y- you know allows you to hear those things because uh, you know a, a Fender Strat and a Marshall amplifier. Uh, you hear the sound the way you see things through a magnifying glass or maybe through an electron microscope, mm-hmm. you know, to, uh, you know, exaggerate the, uh, the analogy. And um, he could hear those. You can, you can, you can do it. You know, I mean, we can do it now, you know, with, with our amplification, we can, we can hear these sounds. We can hear the overtones. We can hear how they blend with, uh, you know, great clarity. And, um, it's not like those things didn't exist before. You know, if you, anybody who's ever been around a really good grand piano, mm-hmm. um, you know, here's these same things. It's, I, I suppose you could say it's not so dramatic, you know, but, um, other people would argue with that. They'd say, you bet it's dramatic. You know, when you hear, a you know, a low, a low E, you know, um, uh, octave and a half below middle C, um, banged out on a, you know, a great Steinway or a Bosendorfer, um, you know, you, you hear, you hear it, you hear the infinite, you know, just yeah. like you hear, just like you hear it, you know, on, uh, on third stone from the sun. That's so funny that you mentioned that song. I was going to bring it up. I feel like, yeah, like that touches on that feeling of, you know, I think what, what 
the feeling that people, religious people get, spiritual people get. There's something sacred in that song. I mean, it is playing in general, but that one, the melody, it, and I, I mean, if we're going to geek out musically, the, the major seventh does something mm-hmm. to me. And I think part of it is because it's the last note possible until the, all the notes repeat again. So there's this bittersweet longing of that note being connected to the first octave and then being called up to the second octave. And Gurdjieff talked about this a lot as a kind of a map of human consciousness and in, in our own personal transformation that we're always going, or ideally we're, we're moving through the octaves of awareness or presence and kind of up-leveling ourselves. And it's kind of like in any process that exists. And it's that last step that we're so close to completion and there's a pull, there's a gravitational pull from the first octave that it came from and the second octave where it's going. And there's like such a sublime beauty in that. And I think Hendrix, you know, I mean, I think part of the thing of him that was so intoxicating is was his direct connection to music. I mean, the way he would play, he he wasn't there, <laughs> you know, like, like, and I mean, he, there was something coming through him. He, I mean, he was a channel. And I, and it's interesting what you bring up about the volume aspect. And I kind of look at the history of music and music as a consciousness that has guided humanity to its sort of next level throughout the history of humanity. That back in the, you know, pre-civilization days, there was somebody banging on a log to tell the tribe, you know, that they, there was some food. And there had to be some rhythm to that log uh, to that sound so people didn't think it was just random so the music came and kind of brought people together and then when they were together then all of a sudden you know maybe they started humming and they they synchronized their humming together and that created a bond and then they began to hear some of those next notes and that created another bond and then eventually pre-written word they were able to encode knowledge with songs so that became a way to translate to transmit from generation to generation information and it kept on evolving, and then of course Pythagoras, and then I, I like moving it forward. I wasn't around in the '60s, but that time set felt so potent. And um, Vietnam War, post World War II, you know, like like shit was getting real in the world. You know, when nuclear bombs are going off, and yes. and you then you have this emergence of rock and roll, which I feel like was kind of music coming into the world to kind of shake it up, baby. You know, it was like saying, hey guys, um, come alive right now because humanity is kind of in a hypnotic trance and we need to we bring energy into it and come alive in our body and dance and get a little bit wild to kind of break free of structures which are no longer serving us. And I think the the advent of the electric guitar, electricity coming in, amplification, which with Hendrix, which actually allowed for those overtones to be heard via feedback. You know, feedback are the overtones moving through the guitar and the amp together and creating this. Yeah. It's bringing those things to life. And I really feel like his presence in the world was important in a way to save humanity. That And, and kind of that music at that time in general. And, um, and even... LSD and and how that interwove with the musician and that it bring it brought new sense of of creativity and kind of consciousness in people that they began to move past stories of identity and kind of coming into more truth that hey we're all here together on this planet together love is really important and when we come together with music that happens you know I really feel I don't know how I feel about past lives 
but I've always felt a deep connection to Woodstock. And I don't know if I was there in a past life or if I just, a part of me recognizes the cultural significance of so many people coming together in a peaceful way with music being the sort of thoroughbred. And um, yeah, I don't know. I'm curious, since you were there at that time, like, like what did it feel like when, like in that moment where Hendrix came on the scene and, and kind of the, the cultural revolution that was happening with psychedelia and the hippie movement and just kind of how music um, really became so relevant at the cultural level at that point? Well, the um, the youth culture probably didn't know it at the time, but they were waiting for his arrival. They were waiting for, uh, you know, the curtain opened and they were waiting for someone to walk through and introduce himself to the culture and say, my music is going to define for you the way you're feeling. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, you know, one of the people who did that. He wasn't the only one. You know, the Beatles were just as influential. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, uh, th- There were, um, I would say that, uh, you know, what John Coltrane was doing in 1965, um, 64, 65, 66, up until his death in 67, um, what he was doing in those years uh, probably didn't have the, as much um uh say popularity in terms of the uh you know american you know youth culture or the world youth culture um however um what he was doing was uh pretty incredible because when he would play he improvised using uh very simple forms uh, almost like folk music forms and in, in, in these years he's he's way past uh you know playing on standard tunes mm-hmm. like uh you know my favorite things or something like this in 1965 he's playing a type of music that where he's playing pentatonically and uh he's playing modally he's playing on the mode and um he plays uh free what we call free and uh a fourth, um, you know, uh, way of playing, which was a chromatic way of playing. He was studying from a book that was written uh, several decades before by Nicholas Slonimsky uh, called The Thesaurus of uh, Scales and Melodic Patterns. And it was uh, a book that basically was uh, sort of a phone book in a way. It uh, just basically said, here's all the ways, here's all the permutations of the chromatic scale. Here's all the permutations of the 12 tones. And there's like 1,500 of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's well known that uh, among jazz musicians that he was studying this book, what's not as well known is basically what he was studying was the, uh, the, the second chapter in the book. That's what he studied. And um, he... Had a, now this is a purely chromatic way of playing. Um, when you know when we have music in uh, the you know 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, uh, up to the beginning of the 20th century, that music is based upon physics, the overtone series. You know the way we, um, uh, you know, uh, the way our chromosomes are organized is the same way that you know sound is organized. Mm-hmm. Then, then what happened at the tail end of the nineteenth of the nineteenth century into the twentieth 
is they said, well, you know, we've now developed all these rules. The, these these rules were not were kind of given to us, you know, given to us by the universe. Uh, but these are the rules. So what if, you know, we took those same rules and just, you know, looked at what they imply, where they go next, mm-hmm. you know? And, and the music became uh, more mathematical and less uh, tonality-based. And this is the music that we call serial music, 20th century uh, music, um, tone row music that Arnold Schoenberg and, and uh, Berg and Webern developed. And this was the beginning of a completely chromatic music. And, and John Coltrane was the only jazz musician that I know of who uh, had this going on. So you can listen to his 1965 tune, Transition. To call it a tune, I don't know. It's, it's quite <laughs> a, you know, I mean, you don't call the, you know, the uh, the Last Supper, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't know what, you know, you don't call it, you know, you know, the Last Supper is the size of a, you know, highway billboard. I don't know if people know that, you know, it, it hits you like a ton of bricks uh, when you walk in that building in Milan. But uh, it, it's, um, uh, you know, transition. What he's doing is in these eight bar phrases, uh, he, he's going back and forth between these various ways of, uh, of improvising. Hmm. And um, so, you know, it's not crazy. It's, it's, he knows what he's doing. He's or, it's, it's organized. Um, but, you know, it, what, what he did is he opened a door and he said, this is what's possible. And um, so far, I don't, you know, very few people, if any, have been able to, uh, you know, do that. But but this, these are the sounds. These are the sounds that, uh, you know, going back to the guitar that Jimi Hendrix was hearing. You know, so when we have Third Stone from the Sun, we've got this sort of West Montgomery sounding thing. You know, because he plays the theme in octaves, mm-hmm. and um, but but he's got this kind of freak out noise thing at the end, which um, y- you know, I would invite the listeners of this podcast to listen to. Rasan Roland Kirk, his album uh, called Rip Riggin' Panic. And uh, there's a tune on that album called No Tonic Prez. No Tonic Prez. Like, you know, Lester Young's nickname was Prez, President. Mm-hmm. And you listen to the end of that selection and you tell me that's not the basis for uh, the end of Third Stone from the Sun. I would invite your listeners to, uh, you know, to accept that challenge. And furthermore, uh, some evidence to this fact might be that um, when Jimi Hendrix was brought to London on the 1st of September 1966 by Chaz Chandler, he had his guitar case. That's all he had. Inside of that guitar case, he had the white Stratocaster that Linda Keith had uh, stolen from Keith Richards (laughs) to give to him. Uh, He had a change of clothes, and he had a copy of Rip Reagan Panic. In that guitar case, hmm. um, you know he was, and of course he jammed briefly with uh, with Roland Kirk uh, too. This is in all the biographies, but um, you know you listen to the end of this uh, tune called "No Tonic Prez" and and tell me it's not the basis of you know the end of Third Stone from the Sun. And uh, you know I'll listen to you, but I won't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> wow. Um... There's so many places I want to go from here right now. I I feel yeah, like like right. bringing it into the the human experience in a way. Like so, one of the things that that I feel is really interesting is how 
music can really like how the musician works is really kind of a metaphor for anybody non-musicians as well like exploring their their life as their song you know as their as their as their creation and kind of how our mindset is really important in how we explore that i feel so like for example um I personally believe and feel and feel that there's at least enough scientific evidence from one perspective to point towards that we live in a harmonious universe. And when you understand the laws of harmony, it doesn't discount dissonance, but we understand that dissonance is actually serving the harmony, that that there's a certain pull of those in-between notes that something within us wants it to resolve. Not saying that it should or it's right or there's you know various ways of, of approaching that, but that there's something there. And I kind of feel like that's connected to the human experience, that for those that believe they live in a chaotic world or a chaotic universe, it makes their life a lot more challenging because the, their fundamental belief is that of disorder. And it's hard to find hope or peace within that. And of course, like it doesn't take um, a deep observer to look around the world and see that, that there is a lot of dissonance in the world. There is a lot of um, suffering and war and just horrible things. But I think it's also important that we recognize that the fact that the world exists alone and that the universe exists is evidence of a harmonious ex- um, experience or expression of something. And... You know, one of the things I think back to our lessons, which were a really, for me, a really unique experience because we explored music, but we explored psychology as well. And and that really made an impact on me because I feel like it tied two of my interests together, which of course is a little bit more philosophical interest, as well as the the guts of music and understanding theory and and all of that. And um, yeah, I guess I'm curious to as a teacher, how you help people, let's say, like tune into themselves. One of the things that I remember really clearly, and I, I imagine you said it multiple times, which was you want to find your uniqueness and exploit it with music. And I kind of feel like that, that lesson really extends to life, that we want to find what makes us tick, accept it, and express it unabashedly. And there's one other thing I want to add to that, which is in music, we're always trying to get better. We're always trying to, you know, have more technique or have more capability. Or, and I think it really opens up the conversation of we really just want to be more available to music so music can play us. And yet there is a, a precarious aspect of that, that we get so wrapped up into wanting to get better that we're never really content or accepting where we are, which actually leads us to being a less capable musician or a person. So I, I would just like to kind of open that up of like, how do we live, how do we tune ourselves in, in your opinion as a person? And how do we accept that, that we always want improvement and transformation, but there also has to be some sort of compassionate acceptance of where we are in this moment. And how do you work with people with that? Those are very valid thoughts. Um, you know, in terms of the relationship of student to teacher, uh, teacher to student, what you need the um, 
what, what you need to instill in the student is um, self-investigate, um, personal investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, if um, if you have a lesson with your student and you give them, you know, X amount of information, uh, that's, you know, that's teaching on one level. But on another level, if you point the student in the direction of the information and say, you must investigate this, then the student is responsible for gathering the facts, trusting themselves, and through personal investigation and personal experimentation, the student finds out what's real and what is not real. If the teacher just gives you the facts, just say, here you are, you know, memorize these, you know, memorize these scales, memorize these tables here, uh, then uh, that does not do um, for a student who endeavors to uh, express music creatively. That might work for a classical musician who's playing an existing repertoire and there's an existing set of standards that have to be have to be met to play that to play that repertoire. But to encourage a student creatively, what you have to do is you have to say, well, these are the basics. And uh, they might fit together like this and they might fit together like this. But there are many other ways that they fit together as well. And what you have to do is now you have to investigate this and um, you have to see what's what. So what happens is uh, the student at first moves along, you know, and they're very unsure. And uh, but then they find something and they know it's right. Mm-hmm. You know, if they look at it long enough and um, now they've really learned something. And if an atmosphere can be fostered where uh, that that whereby the the process of learning is defined in this way, then um, I think that that's where a student gains their confidence. Um, they because what they know they really know, mm-hmm. and um, you know the the other thing is there's. You know, one lifetime is not enough for any of this. Ten lifetimes is not enough for any of this. But um, for you to, you know, pursue it uh, and so that you can look back when you're maybe in my position and you can look back and you go, yeah, that went all right. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I think what you have to do is is you have to, um, first of all, you have to investigate all the arts because um, by studying um, you know, fine art, dance, drama, theater, literature, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, sculpture, uh, uh, both the time arts and the uh, spatial arts. By studying all of that, uh, you find that there are uh, certain um, terms, like, for example, line. Now, that means something to a musician. That also means something to a sculptor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's sort of the same thing. And and this, this you know, gets your feet on the ground as well. But the important thing without, you know, I'm, I'm going to run off track here, but I, I think the, the important thing is to uh, foster an atmosphere of um, where the student understands that the, the path is defined by personal investigation and personal experimentation. And then, you know, you give your life to it and... Uh, you know, you run with it. 
and you see where you end up one fine day. Yeah, I've, I've really accepted that, you know, and it's interesting as I'm looking at how I teach these days, like that is the key of it really for me. It is to offer a space for them and give them a prompt or a direction and see what they do with it and then investigate that and really encourage that that mindfulness exploration of what's happening. And, um, you know, a big part of that that I found is how, <clears throat> excuse me, a big part of that that I found is how to help people reduce their stress while they're in the process of learning. You know, it's like somebody's learning guitar or music, um, generally there's a desire to do it. And then they reach this place, especially if they're a beginner or pretty much at every level where they kind of hit a ceiling. And a very natural habit is to react to that with frustration, which I find can be detrimental to the learning process because all of a sudden the stress hormones are released and you muscles bet. muscles are tightened and we and the tempo speeds up. You know, it's why when people are anxious, they play faster, you know, like they're ahead of the beat. And um, yeah, I've been fostering this in my lessons of of not only exploring them exploring things, but exploring where they are in their own internal system and helping them find ways to basically relax as they play so that everything they're playing is coming from that relaxed energy. And like what I've been finding is that it's just, it makes the the practice and the lessons so much more efficient because they're really absorbing it with that um, more calm center. And I, you know, it's something that I, I've really appreciated with you, not only as a teacher, but just as a human, is that you, and this is my perception, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but you're a fairly calm person. And and I feel like that has been a big part of how you play. And and for those of you who haven't heard Frank, definitely check him out. Um, but he can rip on the guitar really fast and he can play really beautiful, subtle solo guitar and everything in between. So Frank has a really, um, a, a strong musical depth available to him and as a person he's really i mean I'm, I'm sure as people are getting a sense of a very kind engaging interesting person and um i feel like your inner calmness and sort of just good humanness has been as much of your um amazing musicianship that has also been a big part of your success as a musician as a teacher um as a person as a husband as a father that you've really incorporated the the sense of of being a good person, whatever that might mean to anybody, but that you have that within you, and I f I feel like that is um, one of the things that I really really appreciate about your presence, your existence. Thanks, Josh. That's that's uh, that's very kind. Um, you know, um, stress in uh, just going back to your original point here. Uh, stress in the process of learning music, of learning your guitar, practicing, what it is is an indicator that it's not all there mm -hmm. yet. And what I would say is um, when you feel the stress that's associated with uh, playing a song, the stress that's associated with playing a scale or a technical exercise, when you feel that that stress is reduced, that is uh, an indication. It's a it's a gauge that you're on the right track. Hmm. Now, to reduce the stress, you have to um, 
experience the task not only on the technical level, let's say we're learning to play a scale. You have to learn it not only on the technical level, but you have to know it on the musical level as well. Um, if, um, if I ask you to play a scale in thirds, well, then what you're going to do is you're going to, and, and not tell you anything else, just say, play the scale in thirds. Mm-hmm. Well, what most guitarists are going to do is they're going to relate to the sound of it. They're going to relate to da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. They're going to relate to the thing, and they're going to keep trying to play until those sounds come out. So um, they're going to slam away at that, and it's not going to go so well, you know, probably. And and after about two or three times, I would I would um, interrupt at that point, and I'd say, you know, you can um, uh, simple repetition is not going to do it. Hmm. I think there has to be uh, you have to bring other tools, you know, to this task. So, for example, and I'll say to the student, repeat after me. One three two four three five four six five seven six one seven two one three, and what that is is the scale in thirds. And what I've done is I've named every note. I've named the scale degrees involved, and I've defined their relationship. And they'll know what I did, you know, if they think about it. And but then for them to say that back to me. They're going to do it very slowly, very laboriously, and and but they can usually do it. You know, after one time, I'll say, okay, now do it again. And and after two or three times, maybe they're a little more comfortable with it. And I'll, then I'll say, now say those things while you're playing. Say those things while you're playing the guitar. And and now you got to say one, three, two, four, three, five, four, six, five, seven, six, one, seven, two, one, three. And the way they're gonna, the way it's gonna work is it's gonna sound like this: one, three, two, four, because they're putting it together, mm-hmm. you know. But you see, now the task is being experienced on multiple levels: a tactile level, your fingers are moving; an ear level, where you're hearing what you did, but also. Now you've brought the brain into the process, mm-hmm. and the thing that's important for the for the student to understand, or for the you know for the musician to understand, is you must get your brain a little bit in front of your fingers, and you have to keep it there. Hmm. And if the musician can understand the primacy of that requirement, and enforce it, and continue to do it, then it's my, um, you know, it's it's my opinion, um, based upon the fact that I see it work over and over again, that uh, the stress that's associated with doing that gets reduced. Yes, and, and ultimately it goes away. Yeah, because your, there's your stress issue. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting you touch on that. I've never heard you speak of these things before. But my work with Robert Fripp with Guitar Craft and Guitar Circle is based on those three aspects, which is also based on on the Gurdjieff lineage. And Gurdjieff is, you know, could be a whole podcast series. Um, But one of the main things that Gurdjieff brought to the awareness of of the path, he called it the fourth way, which was aligning that he basically said that our body has its own brain or center, our emotional has a center which is kind of like emotions but also like feeling or sensing 
And then our brain, our intellect has a center, our thinking. And that we're in disharmony when those three aren't aligned or that one part is trying to do the work of the other part, basically. Mm-hmm. And and the work with Robert is, or the guitar craft work is basically exactly what you said, that you give the mind something to do because the mind is going to think no matter what. And But we want it to think the proper things, basically, and not get yes. distracted. And we give the mind something to do. And Robert has said, what the, the purpose of the mind is to hold the pattern. So the mind holds the pattern, the body moves in accord, and then the hearing or the listening is actually the sensing or the emotional sense that, that it's not emotions like feeling sad or happy, the emotions, but like the quality of the sound that one to three has a different quality than two to four. Yes. There's, there's there's a feeling that they all bring and every one of them is unique. And when you align all three together in a present moment, then we really are connecting to music at the deeper level. And in that space, yeah, stress has no place because we're actually creating a harmony like of ourself with music. And it's phenomenal. And you know, when I work with students with something that you just said, and I love the example of the tempo shifting, I I have found that there's a tempo that everyone can access that makes aligning those three things together. So there's the process of figuring things out, which I would say is outside the confines of music. This is more kind of doing the work, but there's a way to practice those things at a slow but regulated tempo that gives them the time to figure it out, but still stay in a musical moment, even if it's really slow, like 30 beats per minute. And if they can work from that, internal rhythmic consistency while they're figuring it out, then music is still happening at the same time. And then it goes, um, in my opinion, deeper and they're really absorbing the the quality of music as they're learning and practicing. Yeah, that's beautiful. You know, it's, it's, it's very important to not um, do anything at a tempo that's faster than the tempo at which you can think. Mm-hmm. So you have to find out what that is. You know, you have to, you have to figure that out. Um, and you know, the other thing, you you know, that, uh, I'll share with your, the listeners to this podcast is, um, you you know, when we hear somebody who we define as really great, it's important to understand that the nature of mastery is, um, basically comes down to finding multiple solutions to the same problem. Hmm. What you do is you... Um, you solve the problem on, uh, you know, uh, using one means. And then uh, what you do after that is you you start over as though you haven't solved the problem and you encounter it again and you study it on another level. Um, I'll give the example of uh, learning to read music on the guitar, which is uh, much tougher on the guitar than it is on most other instruments. Um but you can learn to read music in the the obvious way, which is to you know see a note on a staff and understand that it has a name and and to locate that same note name on the guitar neck and and render it you know when you when you see that. But then what you can also do is you can look at the uh, differences between the notes. You can look at the intervals, mm-hmm. and if you know what intervals are on your guitar neck, then you can just play the intervals. 
another way that you can read music is uh, you can look at the notes, define them in terms of a scale, and then from there extract uh, scale degrees. You know, like I was doing one, three, two, four, you know, the key of A flat, that's, you know, A flat and C and then B flat and D flat and so on. And and um, so when I look at an A flat on the note I, on the staff, I think of it as one and I play my one, you know, that I know on my guitar, you know, mm-hmm. um, I can uh, uh, if I know how to sight sing, I can I can look at the music and just hear the melody that it renders and uh then I can pretty much play by ear on the guitar what I'm seeing on the staff. So there are multiple ways. There, that's four different ways right there to to read music. And, um, you know, where in a given, say, a professional situation where, um, you know, you have to play this music, you know, for a record date or a show or whatever, um, the um, correct method or the easiest method uh, will come to you and you'll have the capacity to, you know, to exploit it. So the nature of mastery is, um, has, has to do with uh, developing multiple solutions to the same problem. And these are things that you can um, bring to bear on uh, whatever endeavor is, you know, you're, is confronting you. Hmm. Yeah, that's so beautiful. So one last thing would be we brought up the 60s and the, and the change of humanity and the sort of the the tension that was available and kind of trans- yeah, thanks, thanks for thanks for you know bringing that up again that's that's right go yeah. ahead though and i feel like here we are in not another version but obviously the world is kind of reaching another tension point yes and um people are feeling it and, and i feel like People, there's a lot of people freaked out about it and, and there's a lot of stress in the air and a lot of uncertainty. And I do think there is something about patterns repeating. And, and when we explore history, we learn something about how to navigate the presidents of the future. So as we kind of begin to wrap this up, I, I guess I'm just curious for the listeners from a musical standpoint, not necessarily specifically with music, but from the musical standpoint and what you've learned with music, what can people do to navigate through this time? And and maybe like, do you see music kind of helping us move into another octave of harmonious existence, you know, past this sort of dissonant point where these notes are kind of clashing. And um, I guess like, what can you say to offer some people hope, you know, to, and, and maybe some practical things that everyone can do, uh, whether it's listening to music or playing music to really, maybe just do their tiny little part into adding more harmony into the world to sort of um, navigate us to hopefully um, a a more harmonious and and benevolent future for humanity. Well, I'm champing at the bit here. So, (laughs) (laughs) Um, because I do have, you know, some thoughts on this. Um, So, you know, I was a teenager becoming a young adult at a particular period um, in American history uh, from the late '60s into the into the '70s, into the early '70s, and so on. And um, I can speak to uh, what I saw the musicians doing at that time. There were musicians that were, you know, still singing about uh, 
love and there were musicians that were still writing songs about cars and you know <laughs> this sort of thing. yeah uh, you know their favorite cars and surfing and all that but in addition to that and some of these you know same musicians sort of evolved their their way because it became apparent that uh, there were important things to uh, sing about and to uh, play music about and um the uh you know we can look at the big conf- uh, the, the big issues of that time being the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. uh, the state of the uh, ecology of the environment. Uh, air pollution was terrible back then. Um, it was like, you know, Beijing now. Or, really? Or, or Mumbai now. That was, oh, L.A., man. You know, l- look at some pictures of L.A. in the 60s. Hmm. And and um, and also, uh, obviously, the, um, the civil rights issue. Mm-hmm civil rights issue as a, as it uh, pertained to uh, African-American citizens and also the uh, civil rights issues that pertained to women. Mm-hmm. And to a lesser degree at that time, uh, only by uh, intensity, not by importance, but uh, uh, people who, um, you know, had uh, um, uh, diversity of gender, uh, gender identity mm-hmm. and um, you know uh, religious preferences. What is important is that people come together. This is my theme: that um, the problems that ha- happen when there are commonalities that exist across people, and the people don't recognize those commonalities and they don't embrace those commonalities and see that. Uh, we are really more alike than we are different. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were, I, I, I have to say that um, the bands like uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash um, were writing directly political songs that were galvanizing people and making them aware of the commonality of their opinions about uh um, issues of uh, the Vietnam War and the campus unrest that surrounded it. There were um, groups uh, like Sly and the Family Stone, whose music um, confronted uh, the um, issues of uh, racial equality and um, uh, did it in uh in a joyful dancing, you know, kind of way, you know, you, you, it, it, that was, that's fabulous music, you know, the, the things that he did, um, the things that Jimi Hendrix did, uh, are, um, pretty broad actually, you know, I mean, he, he, you know, wrote about love and he wrote about, um, um, spirituality. He wrote about, uh, the war, uh, in his, uh, tune machine gun, he pretty much captured, you know, uh, everything uh, that people felt about um, the Vietnam War, Mm -hmm. but also about the uh, unrest uh, at home, uh, you know, uh, and and just just expressed it in in, in such a way that uh, people coalesced around this music. And as a result of, uh, you know, once they looked around and saw each other, then they realized that uh, there was a community there. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you earlier you brought up you brought up Woodstock. Uh, that was 500,000 people that had come together uh, in a big field in upstate New York and realized uh, that they had everything in common with one another. Mm. And um, 
then when uh, other people who were not there um, became aware of that, and of course there was a movie made of this that I think came out the very next year, uh, but you know this this drew other people together to realize that even though they weren't there um, in body, they were there in spirit. And so what music can do and what I hope it does uh, is um, brings people together and makes people realize that uh, many of the divisions uh, that people perceive are artificial. Uh, they are many times um, people are being manipulated into believing that uh, these divisions are there mm -hmm. and um, that, uh, you know, uh, music can really define uh, who the heroes are and who the villains are. And uh, this is something that the musicians of this generation uh, need to uh, embrace and adopt as uh, their role, their function. And I'm waiting for those days when um, the young musicians of uh, the current culture um, realize that uh, that uh, that's their... Um, that's their obligation. It's their fate. Yeah. It's so hard because music has become so diversified than what it was back then, you know, with all the different channels and genres are kind of like non-existent. And well, you know, to separate the wheat from the chaff, what you really have to do is you have to say, you know, forget about, you know, commercial music, mm -hmm. forget about music as an industry, you know, forget about the, the these award shows that are on, you know, at night. And uh, because all of that is being, um, you know, uh, organized by people whose main, main um, objectives revolve around commerce. Yes. And what we have to do is we have to embrace the music uh, that, um, you know, revolves around uh, culture and art and communication and reject the music uh, that revolves, or at least understand, if not reject, re at least understand that the music that revolves around commerce um, is, uh, you know, not really of uh, the same kind of value mm -hmm. to us. You know, music with a capital M, as you said, it's a very different thing from music with a small M. Yeah, well... Let's see what happens from yes, here. Let's, well, let's hope, you know, let's, let's, you know, uh, push it in that direction. Let's encourage each other. Yeah. I know? think, I think kind of like, as you're speaking, what comes to mind is I don't think we'll ever see another Hendrix. You know, I think that, that music has become so diversified and there's so many channels to listen that there never will be, I mean, I could be wrong, but another one artist that, that does that. But what I think that's happening is the sort of the horizontal aspect that, you know, kind of like the social media aspect of music that now everybody has a chance to create and release music and have it be heard by potentially anyone in the world. And so maybe the next movement is this sort of collective of the individual finding a way to express some truth that they feel and sharing it with the world and having it be a little bit more of a numbers game rather than um, a singular person or if that makes sense. Yes, maybe if these things are, um, you know, discussed at the, in the schools, at the university level, you know, maybe they'll start to, um, you know, happen. We, yeah. we, can, we can only hope. 
We could only hope. And, you know, and for the listeners, I would encourage you, whether you play music or you don't, that everybody can to some extent. And especially if you take on that path and the, and if there's a song inside of you, then record it and put it on SoundCloud or Spotify that, that, that it's really an open game for us to, I think, share our truths and really be like emboldened and embodied to be able to do that and to release as much creative content as possible. I think that the more content right now, the merrier. And, you know, as we kind of wrap up, I wasn't sure if I wanted to say this to you, Frank, but I would also encourage you to release some more music because you are um, you have access to something really beautiful. And I, and I think a lot of people would benefit from hearing you play guitar more. So maybe another well, album. Thanks very much. I've got the time now, finally. So, uh, you know, now that I've uh, cashed in my chips and uh, moved to Florida. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, scratching that itch a lot more. And, it uh, you, you know, I've had a chance to sort of hit the reset button here since um, – uh, since the spring and and i'm yeah i'm definitely looking forward to uh you know playing a lot more i appreciate that though josh definitely uh, and maybe a youtube channel as well where you're teaching yeah. you know offering some lessons you, you know i have a youtube channel uh frank portley's music and uh you know people who can uh uh people who are curious about what i do uh can you know look at that and uh but that's yeah that's where i'm going to be adding more things great you know yeah. yeah. Thank you, Josh. Thanks for uh, having me today. And, uh, um, you know, greetings and best wishes to uh, uh, those who are listening to this. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Frank. You know, just one last thing. It's something that I've recognized in my life is that I've really been blessed with great teachers. And I, I don't think I would have gotten here without that. And um, perhaps I was wise enough to actually listen to them as well. So this has been <laughs> this has been really um, this time together has been really valuable for me and our, all of our time together. So just from the bottom of my heart, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Josh. I look forward to uh, our paths crossing uh, often in the future. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Frank.